0: I started a Bible reading plan this year. How many has done that? Anybody started a plan? A few of you. Um, I try to do it every year, but then I fall behind, and then I just feel bad, and then I kind of stop. And so, I trying a different one this year. Um, I think it's right now number two on even Apple's podcasts, uh, the Bible Recap, and it follows sort of this chronological story. And I haven't done it before, and I like it because it's got a little five-minute podcast right at the end of it, uh, and it kind of explains the, the scriptures to you, And it jumps pretty early into the book of Job, And because primarily that's one of the oldest books there. They debate whether it's the actual oldest written book or just tells the tale of the oldest events that have transpired outside of uh, creation. And so in this book, I mean, it gets there pretty quick, and it gets, and I love how Job kind of starts, and this isn't all going to be about Job, but I love how Job sort of starts, and it's sort of this, like, Fan duel draft king sort of matchup between God and and Satan. Like, okay, I want to take a bet. Like, do you think Job's going to fall? Like, what's the prop bet? Is he going to lose everything? Or is he just going to lose some of his family? And so it's sort of this setup and this wager. And they're taking lines. They're like, are, is he going to fail like the Cowboys in the playoffs do? And so they're taking their bets on Job's, And it gets kind of dark pretty quick. I mean, chapter 3, it kind of gets straight into it. And He's left asking a question we can all relate to, why? Why? And we're all faced with this sort of question, and we're a society that's consumed by answers. And if you have toddlers, uh, you realize, I think they say somewhere between the age of four and seven, that the average kid asks about three to 400 questions a day. That's a lot of questions. And it's annoying, and it gets old, and you always hear, Why? Why? And you, you're left wondering, sometimes, even in situations that you face, like Job, why God, why? And there was some troubling news this last couple weeks for a lot of people in that Nick Saban retired from the University of Alabama and a lot of people were left wondering, why? <laughs> and Davey's in anguish, and Luke's in anguish. Aaron's new to the bandwagon, so he'll probably be fine. And of course, Pastor Josh found an okay landing spot I'll just change teams. Go dogs. So I thought about questions like why? Why do I allow my mood to be so affected every weekend in the fall by a football game? Like straight up, Florida hadn't been good for a couple of years and somehow I still expect them to win and I get mad at the TV. I threw a shoe at the wall like in our first year of marriage. And Lydia was like, I'm out. She's just as crazy. She's actually probably crazier than I am watching the game. So, and I know you all believe that, those that know her. But why? Why don't we see headlines? Psychic wins lottery. We never see it. So I looked at the the top, since we're addicted to answers, I looked at the top Googled questions. Why? First one's kind of germane to this year. Why is there a leap year? Why is there a leap day? Number one question on this site that said Google gets asked that leads with why. Second one, why is the sky blue? Third one I kind of like because the, the way it's phrased, why are you always lying? <laughs> like they forgot a word, but you know it's like a mom or a spouse with some attitude. Why are you always lying? Why are cats afraid of cucumbers? That was one of the top five why questions. I had no idea a cat was afraid of cucumber. I had a cat growing up, it was 17 pounds. Like it was a Garfield style cat, except it was a Siamese. So it was supposed to be like this, but it was 17. It was bigger than our dog that we currently have. But I didn't know cats were afraid of cucumbers. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> And so we have some why questions that are silly. But we're addicted to answers. Google gets 47 billion hits a month. People searching for answers. I don't know how you actually knew what people were saying was accurate prior to Google. Like my dad would sit around the dinner table and he'd espouse such things. And he'd be like, hey, did you know ice cream sells more in the winter than it does in the summer? And I'm like, that can't be true. Now I can Google and be like, Dad, you're wrong. I don't have to believe what you're telling me anymore. I could just look it up. In fact, one study that said 50% of Gen Z feel they could not live without YouTube. 67% of millennials believe they can learn anything about life from YouTube. And that's pretty close to true. Like, if you need to know how to fix something, usually you don't really know what you're doing, you just go to YouTube, look it up. How do I fix such and such? Lydia pretty much believes I just go to Google and look up and call somebody to fix it because I'm still not probably going to do it. And I had a conversation in the office uh, this past week with somebody that came in and actually said, and prior, I had seen this stat prior to him saying this, and he says, you know what? I would give up every other streaming service, everything, but I could not get rid of YouTube. We're addicted to answers. 37% of all internet traffic on a mobile device is YouTube. And we want to find out the solution. We want to figure life out. And we're left asking why. There was a commercial, some that are my age and older probably remember it, in the 90s. It was kind of a Bud Dry commercial. And it kind of asked that question, why?
1: The Mona Lisa has no eyebrows. Venus de Milo lacks arms.
0: Chickens have no lips. Why ask? Wh- why? Ask? Why? That beer's no longer around, Bud Dry. Budweiser's pretty good at making beers disappear. You know, Jesus was asked 183 questions in the Gospels. He only directly answered anywhere from three to eight of them. He, in turn, asked 307 questions. So he was almost 40 times more likely to ask you a question than to answer your question. And we could say maybe that's because he was trying to deflect. Maybe that's because he didn't want to get in the situation. He was engaging you in a dialogue. He was engaging you, and we want to know what the answers are. And our Western culture wants the the quick and easy fix, but he was engaging us in a dialogue to deepen our experience with him. Because we get caught up sometimes in, in what we're, things we think we want rather than things we really value. And so he, he would, was a master at flipping the script. So we're going to look at some of the questions, one, that he answered directly, and some of the questions that he asked to us. And you may have walked in today and said, you know, I don't, I don't get this church stuff. I don't understand this. Even when Pastor Josh is talking about communion and, and a dialogue and a prayer with, with God, it doesn't apply to me. I'm probably too bad for God. Look, if this was a self-help program and a behavior modification program, we're all too bad for God. But this is not bribery. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross did not make him love you. The love of God pre planned to send him as a sacrifice because he loved you. That event didn't flip the script, that event was planned. And so when we dive in and we look, and if you look at the questions that we often get so consumed about, it's why or when? When am I going to get my dream, John? When am I not going to be sick? When are the Cowboys going to win another Super Bowl? We're hating on Cowboys fans this morning. When will it change? Jesus never really asked a when question of his 300 questions that he asked us. Because he had an eternal framework. And he was less concerned about the when and the why and more about the who. And more about the experience that you had with him the interactions that you had, to be able to deepen your relationship with him. And so he knew the when and the why would sort, of sort sort itself out. One of the questions he answered directly in Matthew 18, 21 through 22, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. You're like, really, God? That's the one you choose to answer. That's the I was hoping you'd kind of deflect on this one because I'd like to hold on to my grudge because if I can hold on to my grudge, I can control the situation, and I, then I won't forget about what happened to me and then I can kind of prevent it from happening again. But this is the one that you answer. How many times can I forgive? I love what it's either attributed to St Augustine or Nelson Mandela, both two historic figures. Either one is great. I couldn't find the exact origin, but it said resentment is like drinking poison and then expecting the other person to die. He answered this one because he knew what resentment could do to your heart. He knew what bitterness could do to your heart. And if you come in and you want to boil down your church experience to everything going perfectly and I need this thing to work out, it will leave you desperate and falling short. How many times do I forgive? Forgiveness is more about freedom for you than it is about condoning somebody else's bad behavior. Because it eats away at you. It eats away at your heart. It eats away at your soul. And you begin to understand that, see, we we live in a world craving equality. The Bible offers it. There's none righteous, not one. There's none righteous, not one. And this isn't some self-help program that kind of gets you right and kind of sort out some things, and so you begin to. But when you're going through life like the testimony that you heard on the screens, you need people around you that can lift you up, that can prop you up, that can help you along the path and lead you into a place where you are free from bondage, from unforgiveness, that you're free from hate, that you're free from hurt, that you're free from pain because you've learned to let go of a grudge. Forgiveness makes prayer possible. If you look at the second one that he answered, Lord, teach us to pray, Luke 11, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now, it's not exactly phrased as a how or or can, but it's pretty implicit that it's kind of a question. Teach us to pray. And he answered, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread as we forgive the debts and the, and the debtors against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. They didn't ask him how to share the gospel. They didn't ask him how to heal people. They were, these were the people closest to him and around him the most. And there was something about his life. They said, teach me how to talk to God. Teach me how to commune with God. And he gave him this model. He gave him this blueprint. And you don't have to be stuck in this model and have to hit all of these moments each and every time. And I actually hope when we read the Bible or when you open the Bible and that when you pray, come from it at the angle that what does God want to say? Not what do I need to hear right now? Or I need to find this answer. What does God want it to say? I hope, man, I wish my life was so marked that when people looked at it, they was like, man, teach me how to pray. There's something about you that's different. Teach me how to talk with God. Teach me how to grow with God. Because everything about this life is about deepening our relationship with him and, being, and the beauty of Job is the honesty that transpires in Job. People, not even in Christian circles, consider Job a literary masterpiece because of its raw honesty, because of its prose and the poetry that's mixed to it into its time. It is a classic piece of literature. And in that, he didn't pray it just like the Lord's Prayer, and he prayed it a little different.
1: An Old Testament professor years ago, trying to help me understand the book of Job, Said, do you notice how after Job says all these terrible prayers? Because a lot of Job's prayers are very similar to this. He's always saying terrible things to God, but at the very end, Job, uh, God says Job has honored me, and he actually turns to Job's friends and says, "You better, be, better ask Job to pray for you, or I'm going to smite you." Job has honored me, and you have not. And the Old Testament professor said, "Why in the world, after all those terrible prayers, <laughs> would God say Job honored me?" And he says the answer is. They were prayers. You see, Job was being angry and he was complaining and he was being angry, but he was, he was being angry and complaining to God. He never walked away from God. He said, I don't understand you, God. I'm angry at you, but he never turned away. He stayed with God when he was getting nothing out of it, which means in the end, Satan was defeated. And what's happening here? is this man even though he is not in any way praying the way he ought to pray he's still praying he says darkness is my closest friend but he's saying it to god which means satan is defeated which means when you go through darkness if you don't feel god's there but you hold on anyway and you say you know what you're god and i'm not
0: All he wants is your honesty. All he wants is the acknowledgement really of who he is in your life. Prayer is a place where we admit our radical dependence on him. And it's a vehicle that he's given us for his radical relationship with us. Prayer is that place where I admit, I can't do this, this is bigger than me, I, I need you. Despite what's going on in my life, I may be angry. He knows anyway. So don't pretend. Be raw and honest with him and come to him with everything that that is weighing on you, that is holding you down. I love what John Piper said. There is one ultimate purpose in the Lord's Prayer. Through the history of the world, through the endless stretches of eternity, the hallowing, the magnifying, the treasuring of God's name. His beauty, his worth, and his greatness, and all that he has for Jesus. There is one purpose to the Lord's Prayer. There's one purpose to what we do every Sunday. It's gathering, and it is the magnifying, the hallowing, and the treasuring of God's name that we can come in and sit and say, God, you're bigger than what's going on in my life, and there's more to this. And one of the final questions that he actually answered directly is, who is he? Who is he? Sometimes he's deflected. Sometimes people would ask him, are you the king of Jews? And he's like, you say I am. You know, he just likes to play with people sometimes. But this time he actually answered it. Mark 14, 60 through 62. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What's this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am. Said Jesus. Understanding who he is ties to some of the first recorded words of Jesus. The first recorded words of Jesus were a question. When Jesus asks why, Luke 2, 41 through 49, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy stayed Behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among the relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, They found him in the temple courts sitting among him. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his teachings. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? I think Luke censored that and he said, "Boy, boy, I will beat you. Why have you disappeared? They found God and got mad at him. Like here's the thing, we just spent a month singing Mary, Did You Know? And it's quite literally there in the Bible that she 100% knew. It says, you will have the Son of God. You will give birth to the Son of God. So she knew. Probably should have been singing, Mary, did you know you're going to lose them? Like, you're going to walk away from them. They didn't even realize you lost them for three days. Jesus. Like, I also wonder, like, when she saw him, like, why have you done this to us? I'm like, "Like, did they spank Jesus? Like... (laughs) I don't know. But how often we, do we do that in our relationship with him? We lose him and then get mad at him. And Jesus responds in verse 49, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Why were you searching for me? And I think part of the problem is in that passage, it's kind of sometimes how we treat our relationship with Jesus. We act like he should be following us rather than us following him. We, we got him on like a little child leash, you know, like back in the day. And we're walking and we're like, okay, I'm going this way and Jesus is walking this way. And you're like, come on, Jesus, Come on. Oh, we're going to church. we got to look like we're real tight now. we got to look good. we got everything going right. All right. Now you go. To, all right. And we walk through our life pretending that Jesus ought to follow us. Rather, when he's leading a different direction, and we should be beckoning to his call and following him and letting him guide us and letting him pull us and letting him direct us <laughs> rather than us. Keeping Jesus on our child leash. Thanks, Joel. You only had to wear that a few times as a kid. We never leashed our children. But we treat our relationship with God, and he looks at him, why are you searching for me? I imagine if he was across from us, Robert, that if you were, he was looking at you and said, why are you searching for me? Everything trivial around would dissipate you'd be looking at the one that holds hope that holds peace that holds joy all of those things we're searching for in all the wrong places would be right across from us asking us why are you searching for me information is not the goal transformation is A lot of people are probably pretty good at evangelizing and inviting people to church, and you need to take that step. I'm more of an introverted guy when it comes to it, so it's not necessarily my strong suit or things, but I want to see you grow in God. And so they didn't understand it, and sometimes there are things we don't understand, it, but too many times we're trying to understand it from our perspective rather than God's perspective. That's why Proverbs 4, 7 says, wisdom is the principal thing. In all you're getting, get understanding. It's why he says in Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord and lean not to your own understanding. That's why he says in Proverbs 20, verse 5, the purposes of a man's heart are deep, but a man of understanding draws them out. That's why he says in Psalm 43, 9, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. Why are you searching for me? The problem is we don't know what we want sometimes. And we don't know what we want, but we're mad when we don't get it. It's like the my dad called them the looms. I'd stand in front of the fridge as a kid or the pantry and look for stuff. And they're like, we just ate. And like, are you hungry? I don't know. Just staring. I caught myself the other day in the pantry. And Lydia was like, we just ate. Nothing makes her madder than like looking for food right after we eat dinner. (laughs) But it's the looms. We stand in front of God. We come to church and we're like, I don't know. I don't know what I want. And then we're disappointed when we don't get it. One of the other questions he asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke 46-49, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation, collapsed, and its destruction was complete. He just wrapped up, he's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount in this passage, and he's like, Lord, Lord, why are you calling me Lord if you're not going to do what I say? And we too often view him as Savior and not Lord. In yielding everything to us, he goes on in John 14:15 says, "If you love me, obey my commands. And I love the juxtaposition of this verse because right before that verse is, "If you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. Oh, if you love me though, do what I say." And it's followed by Jesus revealing and explaining the Holy Spirit to his disciples, so he juxtaposes, "Do what I say, but in verse 26 and 27, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. And I will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, I give it. Let your hearts not be troubled or afraid. But it's all predicated on the fact that if you love me, obey my commands. See, ongoing peace in our life is more about his lordship than it is his saving work. We all need to experience the saving work, and many of you will have the opportunity at the end of this service to do that very thing because we all need to come into a relationship with him. But ongoing peace in your life is more about his lordship in your life. And as you begin to walk it out, don't boil your, your... your your christian experience down to everything has to be perfect i'm an analytical i'm a reasonable reasonable guy i'm a rational guy some would probably say oh you probably don't you know really step out on faith a whole lot because i'm going to analyze everything from a to z and stuff like that but i promise you this you will never be able to convince me of anything other than the saving power of god because i have experienced god i am not at the mercy of an argument and there are things that happen that we don't necessarily understand, but he wraps it in this love. And that's why he said in John 13, 35 that you'll know them if the Bible, you'll know they're my disciples by their love. That's why he said the greatest commandment in Matthew 2236 36 through 39 is love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second one, be to love your neighbor as yourself. It is wrapped in in this and you see it and it's shown by showing up on a Sunday and building relationships and community and the work that it takes and digging into it and that ongoing peace begins to look, this is not about you serving or giving at wave church that is not the end game I have far more of a need to be shaped and formed than I have a need to do things that's why Paul in Galatians 4:19 urges I'm going through the pains of childbirth again until Christ is formed in you that's why what we do what we do until Christ is formed in you. Now, I understand when I give, I'm shaped and formed. I understand when I observe, I'm shaped and formed. That is not the end game. That's the fruit. And so we begin to look at this and just refuse to interact with God on a basis of war- rules. Because living as a slave to sin takes no initiative. Relationships take initiative. And this is about a deepening and an understanding of who we are. Job's friends, if you read through the book of Job's, they were practicing this one-way communication, basically preaching at them the whole time, saying you must be doing something wrong. And while their doctrine may sometimes have been accurate, it might have been misplaced in the circumstance and the context of the situation. And so we get caught in this trap where we're telling people, giving advice. And I, I'm trying to practice this more and more. I heard somebody say this. Uh, he's 80 years old now. He wrote the book Ordering Your Private World. Be more a priest than a preacher. And the people that are around you, your family, your spouse, your kids, the people that are closest to you, be more of a priest. This is a two-way street. This is a dialogue. That's why prayer is so important, because it's a dialogue. It's not a one-way positioning of God just espousing doctrine to you. And too often we boil... Christianity down to its practical functionality rather than the process of being formed. And so he ends with, his life was really bookended with questions. He starts with, why are you searching for me? And he ends on the cross with, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46 about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. A couple words, couple words, couple words, which means, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And it's a hearkening back to Psalm 22 when David cried the same thing. That's why when you study the Bible, I don't care so much if you're on a Bible reading plan, but do something different this year. Take something and study it. Don't beat yourself up if you don't read it every day, but maybe do something a little different. I'm going to take something, and I'm going to study it. Because when you do, you begin to see all these intricacies that are linked together in the form and the fashion that could only happen through the majesty and the wonder of God. And so Jesus is hearkening back to David, crying, Why have you forsaken me? And he wasn't looking for theological answers. He was the theological answer. But he was feeling the same pain and anguish that you may feel when you walk through things. And you get a bad report from the doctor. And you have things. And we've had some things over the last 18 to 24 months. I haven't slept well in 18 to 24 months. And stuff nags at you. It lingers. My dad just had a heart procedure this week. Everything went well, praise God. But I promise you the weight of it was lingering. And it nags at you. And it eats at you. And you felt the same way, that, like Jesus, why have you forsaken me? And I love the song we sang this morning, Gratitude. It's been on repeat in my life for the last two years. All my words fall short. I've got nothing new. How could I express all my gratitude? I could sing these songs as I often do, but every song must end, but you never do. So I throw up my hands again and again, because all that I have is a hallelujah. I have nothing else fit for a king except for a heart singing hallelujah. And that's a word so simple in its form and expression, but has captivated and transcended culture. Leonard Cohen wrote a song that many of you would recognize uh, years ago, and I don't pretend to believe this is a Christian song, but here you go. Now I've heard there was a secret chord That David played and it pleased the Lord But you don't really care for music, to you?
1: It goes like this: the fourth, the fifth, the minor
0: fall, and the major lift. The baffled king composing Hallelujah, 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 Hallelujah. hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I mainly let it play that long. Hallelujah. You can fade it out. Mainly let it play that long because Tori Kelly can sing. She's no national treasure like Carrie Underwood, but she can sing. But Leonard Cohen wrote that song, and I actually think he was of Jewish background, but he humanizes biblical heroes and exalts man's love and recognizes the complexity of human nature. And that at the end of it, we're all broken. And he's left to say, regardless of what the impossibility of the situation is, there is a moment when you open your arms and you embrace the thing. And you just say, hallelujah, blessed is the name. And you can't reconcile it any other way except in that position of total surrender, total affirmation. The Bishop of Croydon went on to exemplify it and further say he's actually brought hallelujah into the discourse of public society and you begin to understand that you can just be open and transparent before God and say it is what it is. Another masterpiece that comprises that word was written a long time ago and we sing it a lot around Christmas. Amen. Handel uh, wrote this in 1741. It was written initially for Easter, not Christmas. And it was written to be performed in performance halls, not churches. But when he got inspired to write it, he was drowning in debt. He was deeply depressed. And in 24 days piece together this masterpiece that is sung across the world now. Handel's Messiah. And it took off in Ireland where he initially wrote it and then all of a sudden it kind of fizzled out and then a hospital, a children's hospital in England began to pick it back up so much so that it got into the concert halls that he envisioned and dreamed that it would go to and all of a sudden, and it's rumored that there's a tradition for those that don't know, if you hear it in a concert hall, you typically stand when the hallelujah chorus is sung. In the urban legend is King George was so moved by it that he stood, so everybody stood for it. Because they recognized the treasuring, the hallowing, the magnifying of God's name. His beauty, his worth, his greatness, and all that he has for us in Jesus. But whether King George stood or not, I actually think it's more powerful if he didn't that the everyday person on their own accord when they heard hallelujah had no choice but to stand in awe and reverence of a God who loved them, of a God who saved them, of a God who delivered them. And you may be in a situation at a point in your life where you've got nothing left but a hallelujah. And it's a simple word comprised of two Hebrew words, hallel and yah, meaning praise the Lord. And it's only found a couple places in Scripture. It's found throughout the Psalms. And then in the great halal, Psalm 146 through 150, it bookends each and every psalm. It's at the start of it and at the end of it. And I think we can take something away from that today and this morning that when you walk out, no matter what stage or station you are in life and whatever you're facing, I'm going to start my day with a hallelujah and I'm going to end my day with a hallelujah. And I begin to understand that I can just praise the Lord no matter what it is that I'm facing. And it culminates. The only other time it's only mentioned once in the New Testament, it's in Revelation 19, when the 24 elders are around the throne and they begin to sing what Handel penned in 1741 that says, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. And you begin to understand that I may not understand what you're doing, but I know what you've done. And we begin to walk through our situation a little different. And we don't sit there and say, why have you forsaken me? And we in turn understand why I'm searching for him. And that's we're faced with the truth and the reality of who he is, his goodness, his mercy at work in our lives. true test of Christianity is a perseverance of faith propelled by a hallelujah. It's not our questions for him that change us. It's his questions for us that change us. So, when Jesus asks why, what'll be your response? Why are you searching for me? That hope, that peace that you're looking for is found in Him. That lingering and nagging report. Relationship situation, child situation, and you're left. Why have you forsaken me? Can you flip the script and embrace it? And it is what it is. And God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. And I throw up my hands. And I sing again and again.